Welcome, everyone, to this week's True House Stories coming out of New York City. I am Lenny Fontana. Well, I thought I was Lenny Fontana with this election going on. It's an election year, everyone. And last night I was up all night to find out we had no winner. One candidate happens to proclaim, proclaim the win. I think it's a bit premature, like a premature ejaculation, but that's another story for another time. But I want to take it back to some, some early days of house music when, when it meant something. You know, there's that song, in the beginning there was Jack and Jack, Jack had a groove, right? Everybody says, well, in the beginning there was certain clubs in England, in the UK that set the tone, you know, Hacienda, um, the WAG, places that had meaning. Uh, everyone knows about the Hacienda and thankfully I was blessed to be as a guest to play at Hacienda at one time before, you know, I'm very proud of that. In fact, I forgot about it to Grand Park reminded me at some festival a few years ago. Um, but each week and every week we, we handpick excellent guests and we feel they're very important to our music scene and need to tell this story. And these two guys come from a long lineage of nightclubbing. Mark Dennis and Tony Walker, as known as Love to Be. When I met these guys, especially Tony, I remember very clearly, Tony was a joker, a master on the turntables. He used to warm up that room very well for all of us that we came in. Sometimes they'd be in a position where we were running in to do two or three gigs a night as international guests. We'd come and do in the Midlands, a northern gig, and then run down to London to do the finish off late in the night or early in the morning. And Tony would be like, where are you going this week? I'm like, I'm doing ministry, I'm doing this. And Tony says, listen, I, I'm going to set this up really well. And he would do the best each and every time. And he made a wonderful name in the Midlands in, 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 in a town that was known for making cultery called Sheffield. I met the owners back a long time ago, Mark Black and Tony Gedge. I remember meeting them and they were so excited about being... Some of the first lot of promoters, owners of a club to bring American international DJs. Remember, this was early days. No cell phones. Um, in a sense of no pictures in the club, no selfies, no social media, no, you know, I'm feeling really good. How do you feel through a text? How about like bring a drink to somebody and say, I want to talk to you. I want to hang out with you. So, with no further ado, today, I'd like to introduce Mark Dennis and Tony Walker from Love to Be. How are you? Thank you for having us, Lenny. Yeah, we're good. We're good. Thank you. Thank you for, for talking with Karen and working in your busy schedules. Uh, before we even get into the first question, I want to ask a main question. How are you both doing with COVID these days? This is a tough, you know, how's it going? Well, we're, we're, we're locked down. Um, we're we're oh, in each other. National lockdown, right? Yeah. National lockdown tomorrow. Um, obviously, me and Mark worked together, so we were able to create a bubble to work together. Um, but apart from that, 
our only contact with the outside world other than my immediate family who, who live with me um is the uh, is this is the power of the uh, the internet and facebook and the streaming um that's been our world isn't it really mark for the past, yeah yeah um, yeah pretty much the same we've sort of managed to work carry on working together on sort of the various projects we've got going but it's uh, you know it's difficult for everyone and, and like you say it's all been sort of everything's gone online and you know it'd be nice to get back out there at some point and uh, <laughs> and see some actual people in front of you yeah. <laughs> but the street this like i say the streaming side of it's been really good and you know yourself when you has been on the streams a couple of times so you know we, we've just tried to still entertain people and, and bring people music all the way through the last seven months really it's thrown up some opportunities for us, and uh, we've been able to reconnect with a lot of people um, who used to come to love to be back in the day, and will probably come to love to be in the future. So, in that respect, it's been good. Um, but the rest of it, what it's done to the world, has been absolutely shocking, really. So, um, we just hope that what we do with the streaming brings a little bit of happiness and and, and joy into people's lives, where it's you know not that easy at the moment, really. So. Um, Anyway, they get me to see me to do. They get to see me do daft stuff, so <laughs> I wouldn't do that normally. <laughs> well, that's important. I know you know. It's normally worse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's nothing worse than that, right? You know, I always say out of some darkness comes some bright lights, and I will say thanks to all of you with all the streaming. And also our partner Zoom, which I feel like I'm a partner in because I pay every month, um, has allowed us to A, uh, conversate like this, B, uh, been able to stream live, which is incredible, and C, most importantly, keep us all out there as relevant as we can be to all our fans. So no longer everybody's waiting for the first question. Guys, because I'm working in stereo Stereo question. We know you both these have a mom. We know both these have a dad. How does music find the young lads? Well, I'll, I'll go first because I am 10 years on Mark. So I, I've got 10 years more of experience to start with. <laughs> but my, 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 my affinity with music came from such a young age. My mum used to say to me that I used to actually kick in her stomach to music that she used to hear on the radio. So there was always music in me and I think music came out through dancing. I always wanted to dance. I was never any good at it though, Lenny. <laughs> I was terrible at it. I was the young kid at the, the birthday parties, at the social clubs, at the discos that would be on the dance floor that no one wanted on, that you had to kick off. So that was really how music came to me because I wanted to dance. I felt the music at a young age um, and Growing up as a kid, all I wanted to be was really a DJ. Um, so I used to record tapes, pretend radio shows when I was about six or seven on my tape recorder. I used to make my own adverts up. I used to play my records off my little turntable that used to stack records on top of each other. Um, and yeah, that was it. So it was, it was something I wanted to do. It was a hobby. I wasn't very good at it, to be fair. And then I got bought a Frisco disco, um, a plastic disco. <laughs> You raise your eyes. <laughs> it's a plastic disco machine. Uh, when I was about probably about eight years old, where I had a microphone and I had a few flashing lights, and um, yeah, it was that was the kind of thing. It was something I always wanted to do. Musically, my parents played music all the time. Um, my dad was into the Beatles. My mum was into more sort of like quite political music, like Pete Seeger. 
that you probably heard of from your neck of the woods. Um, and so there was kind of there was wait, wait, is that Bob Seeger or Pete Seeger? Pete Seeger, the, uh, is it Pete? Yeah, Pete Seeger. Yeah, uh, very political. Uh, and the um, the music was not quite folky and 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 borderline hippie-ish, I think. And uh, my parents split up, and then obviously when they went their separate ways, I, I stayed with my mum. And um, then they, my stepdad, they became fairly pretty much hippies. So the lifestyle of hippies and the child of a hippie <laughs> was surrounded by music, really. So and it was great because I, I got I got introduced to uh, reggae at a young age, um, and that kind of rhythm, I felt that. And 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 from there, uh, a young as a young child, the first music genre that I got into, or uh, culture, was uh, probably uh, two tone. And the specials, madness, stuff like that. Again, which was the dancier but side of like reggae, really. So it had a bit of a uh, bit of tempo to it, and it was all about dancing for me. The, the affinity with music. So that just kept going through my childhood up until I went to university, really. But um, my first introduction to house music was via Jazzy M um, and his Jack in Zone show. Um, I wrote him a letter. I was one of the first people to write him. Um, and I called myself Jack the Rabbit because everything was about jacking in those days. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was a bit weird, a bit geeky. Um, I didn't know I was going to have a career in music. I was destined to have a career, uh, well, hopefully going to university to be a maths teacher. But uh, went into music through um, the discos and playing music at student parties uh, when I was at university. So that was my little career the leading up to, to, to putting events on which was the next step, really, because it was all about the money then, because you can go out as much as you want, but you need money to do that. So sure. to do that career, and I chose the career to be what I enjoyed doing, which was music, and that, that led to a career path in record shops and, and putting events on and stuff like that, really. But um, I'll hand over to Mark before I say too much, because he's, he's got a very interesting childhood and if he doesn't tell you the truth, I'll tell you it afterwards. You're gonna hit the you're gonna hit the the siren ooh, ooh, wrong. <laughs> <Say it again. laughs> this is it's more, nowhere yeah. near it's nowhere near as cool as Tony's musical upbringing. <laughs> Mine is like the, the the cheesier end of of introduction into music. So I mean, my parents always had like music on in the car. They weren't really that musical as 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 people, but. We always used to go on holiday to, we always used to holiday in England. So we had six, seven hour car drives. So we had like everything from the Beatles, Tom Jones. I mean, it was like literally 60s mix, even like really cheesy, like Jive Bunny. I don't know if you remember stuff like that, but it was just real, real commercial. And, um, and then, yeah, my, my parents bizarrely got me into singing at two or three years old. Um, and, and I've, I've, really really followed a guy called shaking stevens who you might have never heard of um he was like an 80s elvis presley <laughs> it was like a, it was like a pound shop yeah. Elvis presley <laughs> yeah it was a pound shop elvis presley yeah <laughs> and uh they got me into singing and, and literally every talent because we used to holiday in england they used to have talent competitions on the holiday park so i was like literally thrust into any competition that was going whether it be young Tarzan or dress up as a robot and all this kind of stuff. And, and the big one was the talent competition where I was, I went and sung and I, and I did shaking Stevens impressions. Um, and then it, it sort of grew from there and I did more and more talent competition and I started to win these talent competitions, believe it or not. 
Um, and then I, I won like a big national talent competition when I was like seven. Um, and yeah, so I was always sort of like singing and, and doing this Shaky Steve thing. My grandma used to make me denim jacket. He used to wear denim jackets and like teddy boy jackets. Um, so my grandma used to um, sew me all these jackets and I used to come out in all the gear and doing all the dance moves. And um, I can't do it now. So don't ask me to go. My knees can't take it anymore. So um, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, so, so, yes, and, and so like, I, I had a really wide kind of spectrum of music growing up. My, my sister, who's now married to the guy she met when I was quite young, he was I'm from Manchester. So he was really into like, you know, New Order, Joy Division, the Happy Mondays, all the big Manchester scene. So I used to go and sit in, he used to pull up outside the house in his really old like Mark 1 Ford Escort. He was a bit of a boy racer. And then I used to sit in the car and think I was really cool and he'd have like the stone roses on and things like that. So I really got into like the sort of indie bands as well and all the Hacienda stuff. And there was loads of stuff buzzing around in the 80s and 90s in, in you know, in Manchester. And the, the music was just so diverse. You know, you sort of absorb a load of it in. Um, so I've gone through phases of, I mean, when I was in, later in school, I was sort of really got into the sort of whole Britpop scene a little bit. Um, you know, Oasis was sort of around at the time and things like that. And then my uncle actually worked in a nightclub um, and I went there. I was, I was about 15, 16. And I went to this nightclub and I went upstairs and I heard this DJ mixing. And I was I was like, sort of, wow, how, how does he do that? You know, I've, I've never seen a DJ do you remember the name of that DJ in that club at that time? Yeah, the club was in Oldham and it was called Nick's. Um, it's a real hot, it was a bit of a dive. Um, but they had like a, a dance a, a dance floor. And I'd, I'd stopped singing at the time. And what had happened, I got into DJing when I left school because I just needed something to do. So I probably won't need to, I probably won't go any further than there because I don't know how far you want us to go with the uh, with the sort of history of, of where we no, are. But yeah, as, as a young man. As a, as a young man, like really diverse ranges of music. And I stopped singing at around about 12 or 13. And um, and then my dad used to take me around the pubs and social clubs in Manchester. And they weren't the, they weren't the nicest of places. I mean, they, they were they were rough, you know. And I used to get heckled when I was only 14. And uh, so that was a bit of a baptism of fire, you know. And uh, people sort of heckling you when you're 14 and, you know, more or less throwing pint pots at you. It's... Uh, just changed, is it? Not much just changed. No, no, no. People still do that now when I'm DJing. <laughs> so yeah, then that led into that led into me having the equipment because I had a little PA set up for the singing, and, uh, and that led me into uh, I left school and I, and I didn't really have any prospects. It didn't do very well at school. I wasn't very academic. I was always the class joker, um, and uh, yeah, I came out of school, did a little bit of college, and then. Um, I walked past the pub one day and uh, there was a sign on the window saying DJ wanted. So I went home and I said to my mum and dad, I'm going to go buy some turntables and I'm going to go to that pub and DJ and earn some money. And my mum and dad had a huge record collection of like Motown, 60s, 80s. They had loads of vinyl and my sisters used to buy it. And then um, I, went, I just walked into this pub and I just said, oh, I'm, I'm a DJ. I can come and do your gigs for you. And he was like, oh, I'll come and do a trial this week then. And uh, they paid me 50 quid a night. And uh, I, I was earning three times more than my mates were. They were doing sort of, you know, working at McDonald's and the cinema and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, I just DJed in this rough pub. And I was literally just doing it to earn some money. You know, I didn't think I'd have a career out of it or anything like that. 
You had an interesting telephone um, headphone, didn't you? Yeah, the red telephone. I've got a picture somewhere. I don't know where it is. Is it, is it in here? I don't know if it's actually in it. No, I did have a picture. I've got a picture. I've got all the flashing lights and everything. It's a full-on, you know, full-on disco, disco Dave. <laughs> I've still got my diary, actually, from the first year I did it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. My first gig was in July 1995. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. That's right. Yeah. But that's funny because I met, I met, the love to be guys and Tony early, early, I guess when they first started in the, in the 90s, early nineties. Yeah. Yeah. 94 that, that love to be started. Um, and that actually, the, 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 the night itself grew out of really run when I, I grew up in London and was fortunate enough to get out of where I live, which is quite a rough area and I got to university. Um, and, it was always about the need to once I got to university to to find some money and to enable me to keep going clubbing. So I, I used to hire out sound systems. So I used to get a sound system. Someone wanted a party, I used to hire it out to the party. Then I developed that on to getting some decks, getting some tunes. Obviously, I was into the house music thing. So it went from listening to it on the radio to buying the actual tunes and finding the tunes. There's a few of us at university that really followed um, the house music scene really in intensely. Intensely, um, and one of them was Ralph Lawson, who's Mr. Right. Uh, Richard Garvin, who's now a political commentator somewhere, or for the BBC, or somewhere, somewhere like that. There was a guy. I mean, yeah, and actually, we need him right now to help us with the American election. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's also Mark Dawson, and all these people. We all came together, and we you know, house music was very early in early early days. And through hiring sound systems and, and doing student parties and doing student events, it then led on to um, promoters saying, have you, got any, have you got any decks? We're going to put a, a, a rave on. Uh, there was a rave called um, Dream, which was set up by the guys that used to run Ark in Leeds. And I, hired, I said, yeah, you can hire my decks. And they said, well, do you DJ as well? I was like, yeah, yeah, I could, I could DJ. I couldn't. <laughs> I was really bad at it at that stage because I hadn't had a lot of practice. Um, and my first set was I had to go on after Cole Cox, who was on three decks. <laughs> so that wasn't very table techno wizard. Actually, I remember him pounding out with three turntables. I seen him do oh, yeah. it in the beginning. Yeah, I seen him do it without headphones, three decks as well. You know, yeah, he, he was a wizard. He was a wizard those days. And that was my first gig. I was on the flyer, 1991, on the flyer after Cole Cox. I couldn't mix for Toppy. But I did have the tunes. The one thing I had on my side is that I really did follow the music um, and I, I sought out rare music, rare tunes. So the tunes in those days, back in those days, were probably more important than the technical side because if people heard that tune that they could get their hands up in the air and scream to, that's all they needed in those days. That was that was rave. So I was in at the rave scene very early on, just, just by chance, really, by hiring my decks out and meeting some really nice promoters. Uh, and from there, that night, Dream became Dream FM which was um, the first, well, the, one of the first pirate stations to take itself really, really seriously and, and market itself as if it was a, a legal station. So it got it got a really good reputation, Dream FM. I'm very fortunate to be able to work with those guys. Um, so from literally doing a first gig in a club, I then got onto radio really quickly. And again, it was all about the record collection and, and playing those tunes that people knew from the dance floors of the raves. But how did, you, how did you know to get these records? What was your go-to at that time? 
all I used to live for buying records. I mean, if I hadn't have tried to get a career in the music industry, I would be homeless now because I'd have no money because every penny I used to spend was on on buying records. And it was, you know, I'd, I'd go without food to buy records. And we were fortunate up north because there was Eastern Block, which, you know, used to travel. I used to travel across the Pennines to go there quite frequently. There were some great shops in Leeds, Huddersfield, all the surrounding areas had a really good record shop. So you'd go around and you'd find all those gems. But the, the, the ace I'd had up my sleeve and what, why I kept DJing quite a lot in the, in, in the early days of the rave scene was because I was from London. I used to go back to see my parents a lot in, 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 the, um, in, the, in the breaks from the university. And I used to get all them my music from Mo's Music Machine, which was the distributor that did a lot of the early sort of like breakbeat and, and, and jungle and, and, and that kind of music was based where I was from in London. So I was getting all that, those test pressings and bringing them back up north and playing them in the raves, which gave me a, a little bit of an edge early days with, with, with the early um, hardcore scene, I think you call it, uh, happy hardcore. Happy hardcore before it was called handbag and all those wonderful terms. Oh, yeah. so, I mean, the thing is, if you follow if you follow the path that I've taken with music, the, the one thread that goes through it is it's happy, uplifting music. It might have been at 140 BPM at the start, but <laughs> but, but it's now it's kind of mellowed out a bit. But but the thread that goes through it always it, it, is music that lifts you up, really. Um, so from Dream FM, I, I set up a, a night called um, uh, well. I got opportunities to work with, with the Utah Saints, believe it or not, before they were the Utah Saints, at a night called Bliss, at um, which was based in Leeds, um, at, at the gallery, which was a legendary a Brave Club again. But then, so the first person I went on after was Cole Cox, and then my residency, I had the DJ I worked with, was DJ Tim from the Utah Saints, and he was a semi-finalist in DMC. So... He was there doing all these tricks. So again, I'm I'm learning off these people and watching these people that are so technically good that it got imprinted in my brain that I have to be technically good to be a DJ. I'm not going to be able to wing this. So I've really got to start to learn how to mix, how to do these tricks, because that's what people want to see. So it was such a good experience to work with Tim and, and, and such a valuable one because when they blew up as the Utah Saints, I toured with Tim when they were doing their tour in the States. I, I did some clubs with him. In the early days, um, I got to do uh, Stark in Dallas, which was Dennis Rodman's club. Uh, another club called Fish Dance. Various different places down 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 south, um, and um, it was again. It was just like wow, I've gone from buying a few records, having a hobby, to playing in the states within a couple of years, which was which was like a dream come true, really for me. And it was from then on, I was like, this just has to be a career for me, really. Oh, now, now that you bring up the States, because I didn't know that, I love this about this show, that we're able to uncover things. You've, you, you went down south in the States. You mentioned Dennis Rodman, of course, he's a black professional basketball player and entrepreneur. What was your viewpoint of seeing the United States at that time, you know, coming from England? I mean, my, my viewpoint was totally focused on on the scene, uh, a music scene. Uh, I, I took, you know, when I whenever I travel anywhere, it would always be about well, is the scene as good as the UK, because uh, the UK scene was really vibrant in those days. Um, and it, it was interesting to see um, how the clubs were slightly different, how the music was perceived slightly differently. The gay angle on 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 the house music scene was was interesting. Um, uh, I, I felt, in a way, I felt that um, the scene in America was 
behind where we were in the UK, but I think you'd already developed beyond where we were in the UK with, with the peripheral stuff that goes with clubbing, if I could put it politely. Um, <laughs> but it, is, it's, it, 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 was, it was a different experience. I think it was, it was very polished. The clubs in, the, in, in America were a lot more polished than in the UK. I think in the UK, I think it was a lot more... Um, the UK scene was like the northern soul scene. It was very much a working class. Let's go out, let's go mental. We don't care what we look about what we look like was what I found in the, especially the scene I went in to in Dallas, it was very much more polished and, 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 and probably more, better well put together really, to be honest. Um, it was interesting. I had some great times. I got to see the grassy knoll in um, where JFK got shot. I had a heavy night the night before. That was interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, so then, yeah, that's Dallas. Yes, Dallas. Yes, yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't do, I didn't do too. I mean, I didn't do much sightseeing. I must admit, because I generally had a hangover, so <laughs> but did a lot of sleeping between gigs. And then uh, I remember there being a massive rainstorm. I've never known anywhere rain so much as down down there. We we had a convertible car once as well, and it <laughs> that's not a good idea, is it, when it rains out there? <laughs> It, no, because it goes it goes from one extreme to another. It's either very dry or gets very wet. Yes, exactly. not, like in England, you can have days of of fog and that dampness. Where there, it's either it's very dry and or it can just open up in like buckets of water and drench you. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that was that was an interesting time with, with Tim and, and and but then Tim and Jez, the Utah Saints, blew up so much. They they were like. Massive. So yeah, they I, were on. Um, if I remember correctly, they were on Warner. Yeah. And Pete Tong was there. Was the man looking after those guys at the time? And they were big. I mean, they, they came out of the rave scene and they produced some some fantastic music. Still do, to be honest, and and great DJs. And, and I, I owe most of my career to those guys, to be honest. The, the early days, for sure. Wow. But the, the thing what we got labelled with in those days early on was that we were rave DJs, and because the way I collected music, it wasn't all about rave music. It was that I was got into a lot of Balearic stuff and and the different genres. And then I discovered US house, and I was just like, this is the stuff. This <laughs> this this is what I should have been playing a long time ago because it wasn't as fast, but it still had that energy to it. The bass lines, the beats, everything. It was just like I found my holy grail with music. And then when I discovered that, that's when I started putting my own parties on after the gallery, which I started with Happy, which was a student night. And from Happy, the guys that owned that nightclub, the Music Factory, bought a club in Sheffield called the Music Factory. And because our night was so successful on a Tuesday, we, we had about 1,400, 1,500 people every week. Um, and we were booking Farley Jack Master Funk, John Please Women, all people like that. They said, well, why don't you do a night with us in Sheffield? And uh, that's how Love to Be was born. Through that little journey, Love to Be came at the end of it, and it was a Saturday night. So I'd gone from having a Tuesday night that was busy to trying out a Saturday night, which is a whole new kettle of fish. But we got to book you, Lenny. <laughs> and many times, too. It's not like I played there once. I played there. Yeah. Every time yeah. I come to England to do a tour at that time, I was doing Music Factory Love to Be was on my, my yeah. stop-off. We just wanted to push US, US house music. When I went, in the original outset, there was three of us that set up like, to be Tony Gedge and Mark Black that you that you mentioned, and I was the third one. But my influence was about the music, and I was heavy, heavy, heavy. We've got to do the US thing. The US music is the best at the moment that's out there. 
we need to push we need to get these guys over this is what we should be doing because it makes us different and unfortunately they, they, they went along with it that my partners in, 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 in at that stage and that's why we had great guests like yourself we had kenny carpenter dave camacho all those all those names that that you know they hadn't been heard up north you know and then obviously it went on to the bigger ones your eric Brillo's. we had sanchez with, with, with morales in those days eric Marillo wasn't a big name yet not like that stage no no i mean he was he was real to real um later but really with his early stuff on strictly i mean i loved it i loved all that stuff as well and he was he was a regular he was a regular guest for us and you know it's uh, i mean your work because you all brought so so many different elements to the table that we just weren't hearing over here and at the time as as mark will tell you on in in, in his stories is that it was all about the record shops and so because i ended up working and managing record shops so I got access to all this music then on a large scale and I was able to work out what I thought, in my opinion, was the, was the better sounds. And I thought it was coming out of the US at that time. And then, then along came Grant Nelson and all the guys from London and showed us that it wasn't just the US. Right. <laughs> it was good. The sound was the same, though. The sound was the same. And it was just like, well, it's about the sound now. Um, so, yeah, we, had, we, we could represent over here as well as you guys were doing over there, which was good. Definitely, hundred percent. Because um, it was like new, new territory for us coming in to play this sound. And and the thing was, it, we had a funny thing about it back then. The booking agents were like, these guys would call us and say we wanted the Americans. So they would be like, well, what do they mean by that? They want guys with those Spanish last names from New York, <laughs> from America, to come and play. They didn't realize, they didn't realize when they were booking us that there was a, that there was a movement already happening. They were just jumping on because it was like, we should say monkey see, monkey do. Say you were doing it or say somebody else was booking. They, everybody wants to get a piece of what they feel success is. You know, what success? Oh, how many bums can they put on, you know, on the, on the, in the place, you know, basically on the seats, bums on the seats, as you guys would say. So. We, I remember being booked to come and play at Love to Be, and it was queued around the block. And this is the craziest part, people. Now, mind you, this is in the north of England. It's cold. It's winter. These women had nothing on. Standing online, almost bare naked, like, you know, very tight clothes, and it was zero degrees outside. I'm in a heavy coat. My thing on, and I'm like, like this, and I'm looking at everybody going, they're online, like, like it's a summer day. This is killing me every time. Be like, always looking. You see them about half an hour later, or when they get in the club, you realize why they've got next to nothing on because they're going like that. <laughs> they're going nuts. Yeah, they're going absolutely nuts. What did you, Lenny, throwing a question back at you? What did you think of the scene in the north of England? Oh, it was amazing. The one thing I loved about the north of England post to the south of England was the big vocal songs. Yes. Yeah. When you had the right song at the right moment, the crowd let you have it. They told you you were playing the right music. They screamed with their hearts. And the other thing I used to tell people was, because I played so much in England, I was there at the height of the beginning of the E, ecstasy. Yeah. And if anybody understands what ecstasy is, yes, it's a euphoric type of drug, but it also makes people tell the truth. And many nights, I remember finishing sets, 
And people come up to me screaming at me saying, this was the most amazing time. And the music I had played, the music I heard and danced to was the most amazing. And I, and you can really see in their eyes, even though they may have been high, they really did mean what they said. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, for sure. Same time, like I've heard them say to other people, that was quite crap. <laughs> I, I think the thing is they needed a certain sound. They needed uplifting music, and it went hand in hand. It came from the rave scene, and then it found its second home in, in the U.S. house and the, 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 uh, the handbag house scene. You know, that was that, that all uplifting music, uplifting vocal music was that's what people wanted. And it went hand in hand with whatever they took. Right. And it fed the drugs, the drugs fed the music and everybody was happy. I mean, not that everybody on dance hall was high, but, you know, you had a lot of people that were doing drugs. That's for no, that was definitely for sure. I mean, I remember seeing it around me. I can, I could, you know, you can experience it, but alcohol plays a big part of it too. What I find with the alcohol is it makes people more loose and more comfortable so they can be a little bit more relaxed and want to be in that kind of atmosphere. Posed to say without alcohol, it could be somewhat congruent for some, you know, in a sense that they don't know how to loosen up, if it's a better way of saying. So when you're in the middle of that, added those EQ parts, as I call them, equalization, a little, little of this, a little bit of that. It really makes a party happen. And mind you, Music Factory had about 1,400 people on that dance floor, which really gives you a thrust when that crowd loved the record. They would scream. You'd be like, wow. We had a good sound system as well because, you know, it was it was about understanding that that music needed that, that sound system. Um, you know, we had a lot to thank for the, the, the guys that put that system in, really, um, because it lent itself to the music that we were all playing at that time, really. Um, Whereas a lot of clubs didn't have that. I mean, the big oh. clubs did. Clubs did. That all the super clubs had the sound system right, but then you know it's it wasn't a cheap thing to put in a club. A system like that was it really? <laughs> had a lot of bass bins. <laughs> who was involved? Who was involved with putting that sound in at the time? One of my one of my friends uh, who I still work with now, um, a guy called um, Dave Bradshaw. He worked with CVA. Um, and CVA were the people that put the sound systems in. They did a lot of the clubs around the country after that, but that was one of their first pet projects, and they did a fantastic job. I mean, at that stage, with all the bass bins underneath it, you know, you, you know, anything with, with a, even a subtle bass in it, you felt everything. You got everything. You got there, was everything. A, there was a club in Manchester around that time as well, which was the first club I ever, ever went to that I properly heard house music in was called Holy City Zoo. I'd love to be was actually there on a Friday. Um, and that that was that had a stage with bass bins all the way underneath it, and it was just immense. And uh, yeah, yeah. But my my early journey wasn't quite as glamorous as Tony's, and unfortunately. But uh, yeah, got there in the end. <laughs> that's where we met, though. Was it in Manchester? Not properly one to one, but that's probably where we first would have been in the same room together, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, I did actually when I was quite young. When the music it was about 1997, 98, I actually went to the music factory. At this point, I'd not really, I'd started to DJ and like I said, I went to the club in, in Oldham near Manchester and I saw this guy mixing and that's when I thought I really need to learn how to do that. A bit like Tony when he was watching, you know, Carl Cox and Utah Saints and you, you see people and they think, well, that must be what DJing is about. So I went to a record shop, I wrote down the two pieces of, the two records that, he was, that I saw in Mick and I went to a record shop and I bought those two vinyls 
and I just practiced with them for about four or five weeks until I could do the mix exactly the same as I heard him do it, <laughs> and, and then sort of went from there. Um, and then I just played in a lot of local clubs in Manchester, and, and the Hacienda was sort of at the, the tail end at that time. But Graham Park had started to play a lot more US stuff, and Tom Wainwright was sort of really pushing that sound as well. And we obviously got the tape packs and this, you know, the the mixes from Love to Be, and and then Love to Be came. I used to go to Holy City Zoo in Manchester every Friday. It was um, too too kinky, I think the night was called there. Um, really big Friday night, but they played everything from really sort of a, a guy big danny uh, used to play the warm-up in there and it was really us like really soulful and then it would go into everything from speed garage to a little bit of trance it was like a really open-ended sort of night of music and then i think love to be went there on a saturday for a while before a night called devotion and you know i went to love to be a couple of times <clears throat> and i actually went to the music factory not to love to be i was working for an agency at the time who was like uh, they, they were just finding me gigs and i was doing a few bits abroad and things like that but they said oh do you want to come and do this student night at the music factory and i, I was a little bit more sort of like i wanted to you know i didn't mind entertaining things like that anyway i rocked up to this student night at the music factory and it was a it was a 70s night and we all had to put bg's masks on and uh y fronts and come out on the stage at the music factory dressed as the bg's and, uh, and do this dance routine. It was absolutely horrendous. It was one of the worst things I've ever done. And thank God I had a mask on. <laughs> do you, wait, which BG song we, did you have to do this whole mime thing to? I think it, I, I think it must have been like staying alive or something like oh that. Oh God, and, even worse. Oh yeah, my God. And we have to like, there was, there was no, yeah, then there was loads of screaming women at the front of the stage, and we had to go over and like it, I was basically a stripper, I think, for the night. So I like I had to like go and thrust in their faces, and <laughs> it was yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't great. So that was my experience. Now on the screens, that is it? <laughs> you know what's funny? Now you're saying the state alive thing about this. Mind you, everyone, this is the mid, you know, early to mid nineties. Let's just say, and yeah. they're already doing retro nights at that time. For something that ended yeah. 20 years prior think about that yeah and there was a massive there was a huge night in that toured which was called love train which was a, a basically a really cheesy studio 54 at night and it was it was just basically a huge 70s cheese fest and it was but it was massive and it used to have thousands of people go to it so they were doing the retro nights then in the mid 90s god so, things you guys do it's unbelievable just to make people happy huh Entertainer. Yeah, well, always the, always the entertainer, Lenny. <laughs> give in to give back. Come on, everyone. Let's get some, get the hat out like church. Send yeah, up yeah. the money. Come on. Mark Dennis needs donations for that dance. Let's do it up to him. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I was just literally just going around just entertaining and, and whether it was on a stage or playing music or whatever, you know, I was just happy to do it. And I thought, well, this is probably the way I'm going to go. And, and then my, my uncle gave me a gig warming up in this, in, it was a pre-bar for a club when, when people used to do pre-bars. And, uh, and then I learned, I sort of learned to mix and, and then took it from there. And then, so I got started to listen to more house music and then started to go into Manchester to the record shops. And there were some awesome, you know, shops in Manchester with Eastern Block. And um, I used to go to Underground with Russ and Craig every week, the guys who ran out in the sticks. And, uh, and their shop was, you know, they, those guys were like really on it. And you used to sort of go in and you knew they'd have stuff behind the counter, 
you know, that they hadn't didn't put out on the racks. So it was kind of like going into a CD shop and you'd be like, what have you got behind your counter? You know, <laughs> and they'd be like, pull some double packs out, like 20 quid double packs. You know, they probably paid like, you know, absolutely fleeced me for money. Promotional use only. And yeah, for paid- promotional use only. Yeah. 20 quid, that mark. Oh, I love it. Yeah, great. But I think at that time, for me, I think at that time you could, even as a, you know, a, a name that nobody knew apart from around, you know, locally for myself as a resident DJ, you could then establish yourself musically uh, as a DJ because if you, you you had a knowledge or an ear for music, you could go into a record shop and buy a copy where there was probably only two copies dropped off by the rep that week, you know, and you'd listen to it and the guy in the shop probably was like, no, I don't want that, you know, and you'd be like, well, I'll buy it off you for a tenner, you know, or whatever. And then you take it to a club. Unfortunately for me, I, again, I just turned up at this club where I saw them advertising their night. And um, I went there in the, I was just very cheeky, I think. And I, I went there in the week because I saw a poster for it. This was sort of the late 90s. I was, you know, aware of Love To Be and Love To Be had had all the success and done Ibiza by this point and the album and things like that. And um, I saw a poster for a night and I said, oh, I, I just went to the club during the day and the Manny Dress was there. And I said, oh, I'm a really, I'm a really well-known DJ around here. Uh, can I come and do a gig for you? And she said, oh, you'll have to come and see the manager on Friday night. So on Friday night, I just took a box of records with me and I said to the manager, oh, your manager said I could come and play tonight for an hour. <laughs> and he was like, oh, he was kind of on the spot. And he went, oh, really? And I was like, yeah. So he was like, okay, yeah, go and do an hour then. So I went and played for an hour and I did a, did a really good job, thankfully. Uh, I got offered a residency. I think I got 20, 20 quid a week for the residency. And, uh, and then all of a sudden he said, I'm going to invest loads of money and I'm going to start booking some big names. And uh, this was kind of like 99 kind of time. And uh, we used to listen to a show, the Transatlantic Mix, which was Tony's show with uh, Disciple. Because uh, it was on uh, Kiss and Galaxy in Manchester. So I was aware of, obviously, Tony. I only ever heard him on the radio. Uh, and then the first guest they, they booked at the club where I was a resident was Tony. And then uh, that's where we met. And and it was I was fortunate when these guest DJs came in these big names. I had a I had a really strong music collection, and and the residents around that time, you know yourself when you was resident at Love to Beat on, you know the residents really knew the crowds as well, so you could sort of establish yourself as a resident. Um, and then I was I was getting like people like Graham Park and Disciple and Tony coming to play at these venues, um, and then starting to sort of reach out to those guys and network a little bit and then sort of started to sort of branch out into the better clubs in and around Manchester but that's where I first met Tony um and then we've sort of yeah we've we've been been sort of uh laughing our way through the last two decades ever since haven't we really <laughs> okay the good thing about when I met Mark I was at I was at a bit of a I wasn't at a low point but I wasn't at my highest point in life you was at a very low point come on let's let's I get know. this story out there by that stage, love to because love to be in its music factory era, only really lasted three to four years, and then obviously at the back end of that, along came trance and it kind of turned everything on its head. So I was fortunate because I got out of the promoting side and and I had the DJing thing. So I was managing to tour. I went to play played in New York a lot. I played played all over and got to do gigs a lot a lot of them around the UK, um, but I didn't have the music factory and at that time when i went to when i played at mark's club i was just going through a divorce 
Anyway, I've never met, I'd never met, I'd never met Tony before, and it was yeah. my first night as a resident playing with a, a headliner. Never played with a big headliner before, and and I'd been hyped about it. All my friends were there. This club, there was like it was a really intimate little sweaty club with really low ceilings, and it was packed every Friday. And uh, there was loads of hype about it in the town. And oh, Tony Walker's coming to play. It's the opening night of this club. Anyway, so I was DJing. I, was, I used to do the warm-up. And then I used to do the last hour. And the guests would play in between. The club was only open until 2 o'clock. Um, and then I, I'm doing the warm-up, you know, a little bit nervous, you know, like making sure I'm doing a good job. Anyway, it's like these Tony guys come in. And my mates were all like really like, oh, yeah, these guys come in, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, this guy shuffles in to the DJ booth and I thought he was, he had a, a, a friend called Matt Heap and I thought Matt Heap was actually Tony. So I got confused who, who he actually was. Um, and then I thought, he look, and then someone said, oh no, that's Tony there. And I was like, all right. And he looked nothing like he sounded on the radio. <laughs> oh, so, you have sort of have an image of people if you've only heard the, their voices on the radio. So I was like, okay, right, okay. So and I went over to so what was the image that you have? What was the pre the, the image in your mind that you had of this man, Tony Walker? Well, he sounded like a bit of a geezer, you know, like Cockney. He had a he's got a brilliant radio voice, Tony. He's got an amazing radio voice, and it's like it was. He had obviously when it goes through the filters as well on on, on Kiss and Galaxy, you know, it, it sounds really, and the compressors and it so was let's quite let's, let's hear that. The, hold on, let's hear that Tony Tony on Transatlantic type of voice. Go ahead, Tony. We're locked into the transatlantic mix with Tony Walker. <laughs> so I'm expecting, I'm expecting some sort of like, you know, cool, you know, suave, big dude, you know, this superstar DJ. And this little cockney hippie comes shuffling into the club, you know. Oh, <laughs> like, hippie. Oh, mate, you know, and I'm like, oh, all right, Tony. Boy, and right. Like, he goes on DJing and he's like, he just didn't like, he was like into it and the crowd was going mental. And I thought, right, I need to break the ice a little bit. I thought, has he got some sort of ego or something? So I thought, I'll speak to him. So I went over and he looked a little bit like, a uh, bit, bit sad and but getting into it. And I said, are you all right, do you want a drink? No, no, I'm all right, I'm all right. Oh, do you want anything for the bar? No, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. And then I just tapped him and I just went, are you okay? And the first thing he actually turned around and said to me was, I'm getting divorced. <laughs> that was the first thing he ever said to me. I'm getting divorced. <laughs> so you, were, you, you had to get me through the divorce, and this is why we're partners ever since. <laughs> yeah, but I should have probably walked away at that point, Lenny. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's talk about that saga at that time, because you're playing and working clubs, Tony, and you're, you're trying to keep, you know, a balance. What's going on at home at the same time that you're trying to keep this magical Tony, Tom Jones thing going? <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, I, I think the problem, the biggest, the biggest hindrance in the dance music scene, trying to meet someone from the dance music scene, is that it's like, like you say about actors and actresses, it just doesn't work. It just, it's so, it's such a flippant scene, and and uh, people, things come and go very easily, and and it wasn't. I don't think it was just about the fact that people mess around because because. In, in our relationship, we didn't really when I got married, but um, it was just I, I was working a lot, I, I, way, way from home all the time. Um, 
like I say, going abroad a lot, and it was all on my own. So I can imagine trying to be married to me or to be my partner would have been pretty tough. I mean, fortunately, I didn't have the looks, the uh, the Marlon Brando looks to pull the girl, so at least I didn't have that to worry about. <laughs> but it's still like a fairly lonely life, you know, this, the, a deck widow or a deck widower, depending on the sex of your partner. You know, that was that was the phrase, wasn't it? So, um, you know, it, and I, obviously when your job is your hobby, that's your life, isn't it? You know, so. So again, that means that means you eat, breathe, repeat music. Yeah, yeah. Everything exactly. is music. There's nothing else existing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The wife says to you, we got to go to a party. or You're like, I can't tonight. Why? Okay, I got to go DJ. DJ. Uh, and- I, I didn't have them problems, Lenny, you see, because I was young. I was about 19 stone. And uh, <laughs> and all I wanted to do was play music and party. So I didn't, didn't, uh, didn't have those women problems, fortunately. <laughs> No, I hear that. So you, you're trying. And now, did you have your kid yet, Tony? At that point, did you have your child yet? Yeah, my 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 my, my eldest daughter. Um, she is now 29, and so she along the first rave ride, really. Um, and then obviously, she, you know, she was she was there. I mean, I've I've got two daughters with 18 years apart. I mean, that's a, that's a that's a house music story there for you, because it's it's just you know I was happy to have my children. Not so happy about the partners sometimes, but but the the, the kids were, were the one thing that kept kept me grounded. And obviously, I've got my 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 youngest daughter Louisa now, uh, who's who's uh, eleven years old now. So, but I've had these these little whippersnappers along all the time, and I think that's a good that's the that's the one thing that's probably kept me alive, Lenny. To be honest with you, because in this scene, it's easy to get carried away with the hype and the and the the, the after parties and and. All the things that the, the, the trimmings that go around the side of the scene. And, I know and, that. I know uh, that. Yeah, you have, you have been a bit carried away with that as well. Don't like sort of say that was. I'm not you. saying I didn't get the carried. <laughs> I'm just saying there's one thing that always could keep a lid on what I did is the fact that 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 you know your children come first and and you know just probably saved my life on a few occasions to be fair. But um, but yeah, no, I mean it's you know it's it's I think I always like working with kids and I think working in a nightclub. The punters generally are fairly kid-like as well, so it was an environment that, that you know it lends itself. But, but even you. now, though, like the the younger generation now, absolutely like love him, don't they? Like the, when we go out to Ibiza now and we do we do our trim tone thing, which is like you know aimed at sort of the festivals and the the newer stuff. Tony's the one partying with the with the younger ones, and they just love it, don't they? That's, Let's take it back, fellas, for a second. Hang on. You said a small little Balearic island that people know it's called Ibiza, Ibiza. Yeah. What was the first gig Love to Be started in Ibiza? And where was it? Which club? 96 S Paradise uh, with um, Boy George, uh, myself. Um, I think Scott went and did it with us, Scott Harris. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a one-off at S Paradise. It did really well. It blew my mind. I think, in fact, Todd Terry played as well. Was S Paradise open air still, or was it already closed top and everything? It was, it was closed top when we did it, definitely. Yeah, um, and that was that was a, a just a mind blowing experience, really, because we, we we managed to. I mean, I knew about the Balearic scene from the music, but I didn't know whether what, what we were doing, especially with the US sound, whether that would translate to to, to Ibiza as, as easily. And it did. It, it went. It went really well. I mean, the only, the only 
problems we came up against were the actual uh, the, the God of Seville and everything else and that goes on around there, you know, putting a successful night on. No, let me explain. Let me explain to people. I want to ask a, a little more in deep, in-depth questions about Ibiza because this is important now. You have a successful brand night going on right now at the Music Factory in Sheffield in the Midlands of England. Okay. So you now venture to take this over to Ibiza because you guys all need sun. We know that because it doesn't, there's no sun in England, as we all know, for only two weeks a year. And that's it. It goes away. So you need to make the sun spread a little longer. So who arranged the S Paradise? Who was the diabolical person that put this all together? And the second part of the question would be, did you stay there and did you bring people with you, most of the crowd, to Ibiza? How did that work? I think a lot of the opportunities arose because it was our second year of Love to Be in the UK, uh, at she in Sheffield. Um, so we were getting a lot of offers. People were actually coming to us. Um, so obviously Mark Black and Tony Gedge were in the fold at that stage and they were looking for opportunities to, to expand the business, to, to to, to me, Love to Be was about music and, and music solely. I probably would have done it for nothing, then, you know, like most people who are in the music industry. It's the passion, yeah? But my two partners, because they weren't really music heads, they were businessmen and they were really good at what they did. So it was a natural progression for them to want to be in Ibiza because that is where the best clubs were. This is where, this is where the whole scene was going. It's where you wanted to be. It was... We ticked a lot of boxes in the UK about being a super club, but you weren't really a super club unless you'd done something out there. So it was only a one-off at first, I and mean, it was a one-day one, one day because it is a big risk. And, you know, you're going to a different country, you're trying to create a massive party, and, and, and everything went really well. The crowd followed us, but we did a one-off. And I think that was the most sensible thing to do at that stage because we wouldn't have sustained a full season. Um, I wouldn't have survived a full season, <laughs> to be fair, because... The second year we went back, I, I missed the gig because I ended up in Ibiza Royal Infirmary because uh, I'd had a few too many Red Bulls and uh, vodka. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I was in charge, but stupidly, I was in charge of a promo team as well. So uh, on one occasion, um, I said, we've got these flyers. And I said, well, should we just bury these in the sand? Because there's a bar over there that does really good cocktails. <laughs> so, I made lots of friends. <laughs> we didn't I, bet have the did. I bet you did. But yeah, I mean, I think that was it. That 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 was that was the point for from which that you know partying was 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 a thing as well as being into the music. So there was two things going on, and I think I was conflicted between the two at that point. Um, mind you, you're saying that I was. I mean, I was running record shops back in the UK. I was having a busy life. So when you get the opportunity to go out there it's a chance to let your hair down as well. And at that stage when I still had hair, it, it went well and drew you down. I do survive to tell the tale. And for, I do owe a part of my life to the, the Uronson crew who took me on board for five weeks afterwards and, and Mr. Paul Murray. Um, and uh, I stayed out there most of the season then and uh, got a taste for it. That's all you need. They always say, once you get lost in the visa, it's hard to come back. Yeah, I mean, I missed about seven flights. So <laughs> my family was sending out search parties. There were some Bernards coming over the hills. 
he was on the phone to me like I was back in I was in the UK and he kept phoning me up like you know uh, I don't feel very well and I'm like well I can't really do a lot for you I'm, I'm in the UK <laughs> what do you call that what do you call that combination Red Bull and Baca what 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 was that called remember had a name what? for that drink when you when you put Red Bull and Baca together <laughs> fire. <laughs> Vodka Red Bull, isn't it? Craziness? <laughs> Brain freeze. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, my, my, I mean, obviously, I have to try and defend myself somehow here. My, my defense was Red Bull had only just come out at the time. So I had no idea what it was going to make me start for five days. <laughs> yeah, that, that, wait, wait, wait. It <laughs> was just the Red Bull, wasn't it? <laughs> so you thought you could be super tall. You thought you could be super Tony and be a great promoter, stay yeah. up straight, keep going and going and going, and just keep on this. Wow, this is great. Man, first Red Bull, you're energized. Second Red Bull, you're like, by the what, by the thousandth Red Bull, you must have been like a yo yo. The thing I is, think Red Bull, I think Red Bull was a bit stronger back then, weren't it, Tony? Problem, the problem is in Ibiza is you can party and have your Red Bulls with the first group of people. Then they go, all right, we're going home now. And then just as they oh, I'll go home now, then you bump into another group of people. <laughs> and it's like this domino effect that, you you know, if you want to party nonstop back in those days, you could. You could. And I think, you know, it, it was that was uh, that was probably my downfall, not wanting to uh, to go to well, that. And also there was a thing called Mr. Charlie. Mr. Oh, well, I mean, at that stage, I, I, <laughs> Mr. Charlie, Mr. Charlie with the vodka and the Red Bull really gives a good push. I, I remember for a lot of people. There's only one Charlie in Ibiza, and that's Charlie Chester. Oh, oh, you know, he, he, he's a good man. <laughs> I mean, we got we got swallowed up a few times. But I wasn't there around that time. I sort of came into Love to Be at the back end of the nineties when I met Tony. And uh, I mean, just around that time though, Ibiza was exploding wasn't it tony and you yeah. know you, you read about it in you know you saw, saw it in mix mag and and things like that and there was quite there was quite uh there was a lot of tv like club of vision was on itv at the time which is like a main station over here you know so the, the exposure to to club land and house music was like massive there was loads of specialist radio shows on every station you know danny ramplin had love group dance party on radio one and you know Tony's transatlantic mix thing, and you know Graham. Pa yeah, there was a station in Manchester that had Graham Park and David Dunn on during the day at lunchtime. You know, doing doing house music for two hours during the day. So the, the exposure of people, and, and I think around that time is when the super clubs love to be was probably one of the first super clubs where it was a little bit more glamorous, and you know you had to really get dressed up to get in there. Um, you know, it was a huge capacity venue. Um, you know, s s big big name DJs, and and I think from there, I think the the, the, the nights like Love to Be and and, and and places like that really sort of made the scene explode because then club owners and promoters really wanted to get a piece of that. And literally around that time, I think in the nineties, every village and town, I mean clubs, nightclubs in the UK are few and far between now. You know, whereas at that time, every town, every village had a had a big capacity club. You know, and had a guest DJ playing, and had a team of residents, and it was all about house music. You know, it was, it was that it was handbag that went into funky house, and and then the sort of super club explosion, sort of around the millennium, really. 
and uh, and the scene in, in the UK was just massive. You, like I said, you didn't. But these, I think, a lot of the time these days, the, the guys who are sort of at the top of the game tour a lot now. You know, they're they're at a festival in Germany and then they're in Brazil the week after, and you know, they're sort of traveling around the world, which is great. But I think there was that many clubs and events in the UK around that time. You could literally do six, seven, eight gigs a week just around the UK, you know. Well, if you were a UK guy, if you're American, you couldn't do it like that because you had to have X amount of miles around that you weren't doing a gig. If you did love to be, you couldn't do a a gig on uh, 20 minutes away. It's too close. Yeah. And it's still like that now, I think, you know, when you book a headliner, you know, they don't, they don't want them playing close by. I mean, even at that time, though, I mean, I, I was fortunate. We, we went on to do, myself and Tony went on to do a club called The Temple in Bolton, um, which was a, gr- a huge 3,000 capacity venue. And it was full every single week. And um, even at that time, the, the club owners wanted the residents to sign a form to say they wouldn't play at another club. You know, we were residents on a, you know, a couple of hundred quid a week, you know, they were saying to us as well, we don't want you playing at this club, which is 20 miles away. You know, it was, it was bizarre and it was very, the scene was just crazy at that time and everybody wanted a slice of, of the action and it's because there was so much competition as well. Seems to be that way still. Well, yeah. up to pandemic. Yeah, yeah. It'd be a free, a free for all once the pandemic's over. <laughs> if I remember correctly, you've also hosted... PAs at Love to Be. Yeah, man, man, many PAs. <clears throat> I mean, uh, the thing the thing about Love to Be it was all about vocal vocal music. It was all about singing songs. It was all about uplifting vocal house. That 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 was that was my that was my input. That's what I wanted, and that's what the crowd actually wanted as well. So what would go hand in hand with that was the PAs, and we had some great PAs. We had CC Rogers. Uh, we had Chrissy Ward, believe it or not, who was a Playboy bunny. I didn't, never knew that. But, um, and I had, we had, um, Bar- was it Barbara Tucker? Oh, no, Jocelyn Brown. And one of, the, one of the PAs, and I'm not going to mention the name because they've come after me on this one. But I, I used to be in charge of the DATs. The PA would come with a DAT because it, generally if it's a single vocalist, you come with the DAT, don't you? Now, for those who don't know what a DAT is, Lenny, you can tell them. It's a small cassette, isn't it? A small cassette, which is digital, which is the same as having an acetate or a piece of vinyl. But it's the backing track that the, the vocalists would sing along to. Now, they generally, because I was the music man, put me in charge of the DAT. So I'd have to put the thing in. If, if they didn't have a roadie or a, a, a tour manager, it would be up to the, 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 the promoter to put the DAT on and say what time they're going to play. Well, that's not a good idea with me, especially not if I've had Red Bulls that night. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the DAT, and for those of you who don't know about cassettes, you've you've got a, a a hole at the top, which means you can't record over them. It's called the right, it was the right protect tab on cassettes, and that's similar things on the DATs, which means you can't record over them. But it was like a flipped switch on a DAT, and <laughs> on one of the PAs, they hadn't put this protection on that that that. So oh, you just you could literally record over it if you didn't press this tab. I didn't know that. So they've gone to go on <laughs> and put the PA to go on. And I knew because I'd seen the, the, the dress rehearsal during the day, what was going to happen. So I said, Tony, put this on, press play, press play. Miss hit the button, hit record. 
So I'm recording. I'm recording over the set. They're meant to be singing. <laughs> so, so now fast forward. So now that, so that night, what happens? I'm looking at the machine, the DAT machine, like with blurry eyes, like what the f's going on here? I don't know what's going on because I just presumed you could. So, wait, wait. so they they announced the artist to go up and sing. The artist <laughs> says, "Okay, play the track," and then what happens? <laughs> I recalled over the, the backing track. <laughs> I only got only a bit of it. Obviously, I had a little bit more to sing to <laughs> when I worked it out. <laughs> so I think that night they did two two songs instead of three. They still got paid. <laughs> but I bet they were upset. Whoever it was, <laughs> just a bit, just a bit. Yeah, PAs, PAs were huge, weren't they, around that time as well? Nice. And then yeah. now it's gone full circle. PAs are popular again now. And yeah. you know, I remember when I when I then first started to go out and, and go to these nights. Like say, Love to Be was always had a big PA on as well, sort of like once or twice a month. I mean, even going back to the lineups, like you say, I mean, Simon Dunmore was one of the first sort of people booked at Love to Be, weren't he, as well in the early days. And if you look at the flyers, you know, for a weekly event, yeah. If you look at the flyers for a weekly event, we still post them now, and and that you know, it's immense that clubs were doing that week after week. You know, you don't get weekly nights anymore in the UK, really. You don't. So, you know, to to sustain them them levels of bookings every single week, you know, the scene was was absolutely booming in the UK. You know, that's the difference to now. You know, it was a it was a different scene back then. But it seems to be better. It's festivals yeah. of I mean, I'm, I'm like you say, Lenny, the, the crowd were really educated, as in, you know, if you if you played the right music, they knew their music, you know, and, and even though you were playing vinyl that, you know, wasn't sort of readily available in shops and stuff, these people were there every single week in that club, you know, and they knew the music that the residents were playing. They knew the music, you know, they, they were clued up, you know, the clubbers in that period of the super club era were really clued up. But they had, they had radio stations that were backing yeah. it up as yeah. well. There was a complete scene. There were, there, were, there were magazines like Mix Mag and DJ Mag. There was a whole scene that was, that, that, that would generate, that had come out of this super club era and, and the early house era, you know, from, from the Hacienda onwards really. And, 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 you know, it was it was a thing. You know, if you, people look back now with nostalgia to the Northern Soul scene, well, that was the Northern Soul of that, that generation and some, and some. You know, it was massive. You know, it, 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 it was a youth culture and it, 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 it lent itself to, to people enjoying themselves at the weekend but appreciating really good music. That was the thing. You could go to a Ritzy or a commercial venue and hear rubbish, dross. Like, these kids and, and uh, were going to hear really, really good music and get educated with that music. And I think that lacks a little bit nowadays. I remember, I remember the punters looking over the booth, trying to write down what songs we were playing. I remember they were like looking over like this and, and, and going like that. And I just, I can remember that clearly. Like they would be like little kids at Christmas looking at presents, trying to figure out what songs these, we were all playing. I'll tell you what the no. DJs used to do to me, Lenny, the guest DJs, when I was a resident around Manchester, the guest DJs a couple of times came in and it's, I'd, I'd have a tune that they wouldn't have. And uh, and then they'd say, oh, I've got this, it was like one of the Americans, or I think Tony did it to me once, actually. He said, oh, I've got this really rare double pack here. Um, I'll, sw I'll swap you for that tune. And naively, I'd, you know, yeah, okay, then, yeah, great, great. And then they'd give me like the B-sides of the double pack. 
and uh, and then rinsed me for my best tune. <laughs> That's so twenty quid. Twenty quid. That's tongue in cheek. That's real cheeky. Yeah, really. <laughs> but going back to your point of the Panthers, your pub is pouring over the, to get to desperately to see what music you're playing. There's a downside to that, though, Lenny, because there used to be a drink called um, it's called Castaway. And you'd always you'd get the girls as well as the lads looking over, you know, it was, it was everyone was interested in the music. But this girl one night had a castaway on my record box and completely soaked my record box. And after me was Dave Seaman, one of my heroes, another great legendary Lee's DJ. I'd not played with him before. And he was just about to come, come in. And I, <laughs> I had to take every record out of every sleeve and like to try and dry it out around the DJ booth. And that's what Dave Seaman walked in. His first impression of me was, I must be the most you know, untidy DJ ever. <laughs> it's like a bombardier. Tidy up your stuff, Tony. Tidy up there. <laughs> they were all recording nicked off me. Not like this normally. <laughs> but I think, and, and I think from there, like I say, we were saying in the 90s, my first gig at Love To Be was actually on a Love To Be tour because... Just like you say, it was a few years at the music factory, and then Love to Be became a big touring brand. And they say, I think Tony obviously had more information. They, had, they did the tour with Grolsch and things like that, and and you know, it sort of toured around everywhere. That's, that's, what, that's when I went. I went to Manchester and, and and went to Love to Be, and then and then I got asked to go and play at Love to Be, where it had gone to Mint Club um, in Leeds, which was like an awesome club. It closed down, I think, last year, didn't it? So I think. Uh, you give me a second. I'm going to step away. I got a picture from this time. Hang on. Okay, keep going. I'm going to put me interested. I wonder <laughs> if you've been drinking Red Bull, Tony, at this point. I think I got a picture, if I remember correctly. I want one of those hats. Do you reckon I can get one of those hats? <laughs> Do you let us have one of those hats? Yeah, and these speakers. Yeah. I reckon so. I want a Lenny. Is that a Lenny hat? Did you say Lenny? Yeah, I think it is. Lenny, can I have a hat? <laughs> Got four there. There's one each. One each. <laughs> At each. Let me see. I may have one from the from the archives. Let me see if I have one in my books. It's funny. I did keep pictures from that era. <laughs> We've got some, but we couldn't actually broadcast them, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> uh, hopefully, I can find it. But Tony. Most importantly, the thing is that, um, you know, you created a brand that became synonymous and it was pre-cream, pre the super clubs, you know, and it's still to be the, 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 the kite mark on love to be setting the standard and, you know, it set the standard and paved the way for a lot of the, the big events that came after, I think, you know, with the sort of more glamorous side of, of clubbing. Big time. Yeah, no, it did, that music factory era didn't really last long enough, but it, I think sometimes if you've got something that good, it, it, it's better to have it in a small period of time and not let it wear itself out too much. So I think that era was probably the, the best era. It wasn't the only era of Love To Be, though, was it, Mark? So there's a lot No, no, like you said, I mean, it, my first gigs at Love To Be was sort of late 90s, around the millennium kind of thing, and, and that was... The, the real peak of clubbing in the UK, I think. And, and like I say, Love To Be was touring all over the country and I was jumping on a few of the tours with the guys 
and Tony was doing his Barking Brothers thing around about that time as well, <laughs> which which I got involved in. And uh, you know, it, it was just a bit of a crazy time. Was a lot. Eh? Have you heard Barking Brothers, Gordon's Groove? We, we ripped off Lonnie Gordon basically, and um, put put George Morrell's Morrell behind it. The first ever bootleg, but it got it got picked up by Virgin and became quite big. It, Phil Cheeseman all, uh, also kicked me off of the strictly with the manual list because I bootlegged it. <laughs> No, that wasn't yeah, so, Okay, so let's understand the story. <laughs> let's clarify the story. So what happened there? Who did what? And tell the story because they're not going to get it unless you explain it correctly. Right, so the story, the story, I mean, the story comes from uh, my first experience in, in a studio. There was a lad that, that used to come in the record shop that had done a track and the track, obviously, as a DJ, you can tell when something's been well produced. It was really well produced. So I was intrigued to see what the studio was, where it was doing it. And it was fairly local. It was in Warrington. And he said, come along, we'll do, we'll do a track together, bring some ideas. And I've got a million ideas, but I just didn't know how to put it all together in the studio at that stage. So I, I want to do a track that sounds like Morel's Grooves 4, because that bass line is killer, you know, and I've got some, some, some US garagey beats that we need to put with it. And um, I took along an acapella album. I said, you know, Morel's Groove 4 is great. It's, you know, when I play it out, I put an acapella over the top of it, either Jungle Brothers, something like that. And then I was meant to put the Jungle Brothers on it. And the next a cappella on this album was Lonnie Gordon. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to catch you, baby. So we put it on and that, fortunately it worked. So we, we did it and we put it together in about eight hours. We said, it sounds good. So we pressed a few copies and it just went berserk. It, it blew up. Um, and it got, it, well, it got signed originally to Brothers. We had to re-vocal it because, and we had to replay the, the sample as well. Um, obviously, Phil Cheeseman, who was in, who was head of the uh, Strictly Rhythm uh, mailing list and stuff like that at the time, wasn't too happy with me because it was a it was a sample, and then it got replayed. Um, so, but it was just a little small experience in the studio that blew up, and and we would have been on top of the pops, Lenny. We would have been on top of the pops, but that's another story. Who's the, the label that grabbed it? Well, it, it originally it got signed to Brothers Records, so. Basically, our mid, our mid, our mid the, this is in the UK national charts. Our mid-week um, chart position was, I think, 13. We were the highest independent record able to get uh, that chart place in that week. Wow, that's awesome. There, there was a lot of a background story behind it, which I won't go into because obviously there's, there's a few personal things to do with that. Uh, not my personal things, anyway. Um, but, but basically, the record company made a boo-boo and there was five tracks on the CD which meant it couldn't be released as a single or they didn't want it released as a single. So it had to go into the mid-price compilation charts. So even though we got all the money from the, the sales, we didn't actually make it onto the top of the pops. We would have been in the top 10. Oh, wow. But that's why that tune is still underground because it never blew up to that extent. So you still hear, hear DJs playing it now. I'm sick to death of it, actually. <laughs> I've heard it too much. And I, and I got roped in, Lenny, to do some tours uh, some Barking Brothers tours because Love to Be was touring. There was loads of gigs, and I got roped in. He said, "Oh, you're going to go do some uh, Barking Brothers tours." And um, so I went and did this gig at this student club in uh, in Lincoln, which is like in the in the middle of nowhere, sort of in the middle of well, Midlands, in it really, sort of on the east side of the Midlands. And uh, and then ne the next thing, I walked in, did the gig, and then they sat me down at a table and made me do an autograph session as the Barking Brothers. And I was like, absolutely nothing to do with this track. 
at all. <laughs> and there was real anoraks there, you know, like I felt like I was going to get kidnapped. You know, there were real fans there. And uh, and I was just I was just signing everything, you know. It was great for me. It was a great experience. I was only about twenty years old at the time, and uh, yeah, I got roped in. I was the I was like the the, the fifth beetle. I was the, the the third barking brother. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was that was an interesting time. But yeah, and then I think the turn of the millennium, love to be was in various different homes, you know, from a love to be angle. Like I said, it had a residency at Mint Club in Leeds every Friday, which was which was fairly successful. But I think what tony was chatting earlier about the, the direction it went in was more residents um you know sort of more local d the local djs and the resident djs um because i think after the millennium personally i think the clubs really outpriced millennium you know they, they were charging 60 70 pounds for a ticket the it taxes killed, were killed the same that's what the millennium Millennium was the the big it was the end of, of the super clubs. You know, it all went downhill from there because what happened was and New Year's Eve's have never been the same since then because the clubs hiked the prices up, the taxi prices were high, so people had house parties. So then every year since then, people are thinking, oh, I'll have a house party on New Year's Eve because it didn't cost me any money. And you know, we have a party at home. And then, you know, from there, I think love to be always carried on through the noughties, doing tours and obviously the reunion kind of things. Um, but then electro came along, you know, diff different sounds came along around that time, and uh, you know, we we sort of followed 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 the path of of, mu of where the music went, and sort of in the north, the Leeds scene absolutely blew up. You know, it was, it was a massive scene in Leeds. Me, they had sort of after hours. Let me paint a picture here. We're in the mid nineties, Tony and Mark, right? Okay. Remember, we all used to say this. Oh God, end of nineteen ninety nine, two thousands coming. The millennial. But we're still living the 90s. If you can go back to this time and think about this. Um, when the 1999 era came to an end in the 2000 and the 2000s began, the new century, did you ever think this love to be thing would ever go this long? Nor less, nor less, would you still think you'd be in this music industry thing? doing this i definitely think we'd still be in it because i mean love to be comes has come and, and gone it's had different owners uh when mark and tony sold out and i left and went to do my my, my radio thing and the, and, uh, and and touring there were different owners who kept it going but on a different kind of tip um but then there was, there was an opportunity to get it back a few well it was probably about how many years ago now about 14 years ago yeah about 14 15 years ago 14, and i bought the i bought the brand back primarily because i saw that there is there is a future because music you know Lenny, music goes around in cycles do i know comes and goes comes and goes comes and goes and i saw that love to be it will that will come back it has to come back because if the music in the initial outset the same with disco or anything if it was good it will come back because and especially with how house music is it borrows stuff, doesn't it, from, from, from previous eras. So it'll probably borrow stuff from itself at some stage and go back around on itself. That was my theory anyway. It didn't happen straight away. So we we, we did a few gigs um, and tours tours we'd love to be. But I think Love to Be was always always there as a touring brand, wasn't it? And, and you know, it was, yeah. like you say, it had different owners through the noughties and yeah. went sort of locally around the north and, 
you know, it, it always had it's always had a presence of to me, whether it's been two reunions a year. And I think I for me, the noughties was probably the, the leaner years of love to me where the, it was present constantly. And, and I think for me and Tony, we started to work together more, DJ together. And we, we set up a, a record label together in sort of about 2004, 2005. And we'd started to get in the studio together and things like that. So we, we just had other projects while these the, the other people were doing what they were doing. And they still booked us to play at Love To Be whenever they did Love To Be. And, and you know, they were still doing tours in Newcastle and places like that. We did like the Love Parade and things like that with Love To Be. Oh, wow. Cool. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, so, so there were still, still some really good gigs. But I think the, musically the scene had sort of changed around that time, you know. Electro was really big in the UK, especially in the north of England. And then it sort of went into that real deep house sound, sort of like the back end of the noughties. And the, the vocal, more funky sound that we all loved, you know, that we all played in the super clubs. It, it had been forgotten, you know, and, and, and the, the sound had really changed. Head Candy grappled onto it, though, didn't they? And then that Head Candy kind of eclipsed everything. And Head Candy was basically what Love To Be was. But the thing is, because of the power they had behind them with Head Candy, there was no point going up against them because that that, that, that brand had established itself really as, as, as the, the leader in vocal house music. Really. Right. So I'd love to be to come back and say, well, hang on, that's what we do as well. It made us look like we were trying to do what they were doing. So that's why we steered away from that a little bit because, you know, they, they really, that was a commercial entity head candy and it was done really, really well. You know, I, you know, I take my hat off to them for what well, they did. Well, at the same oh, time, Right. Yeah. Since you had love to be, you had Miss Money Pennies, Up Your Ronson. Yeah. You had a lot of different events going on that were pretty big in the country. Huge. Huge. But they all stopped, they all come to a stop at one point in that era. And and, and a lot of them do reinvent themselves. And I think that's what we had to do with, with Does anybody know why they stopped? Why I mean, I, mean I, I think the vocal the vocal house thing was it went more local. I mean, especially in Manchester and Leeds, there was a there was a scene for it, but no one was booking headliners for the, for their clubs because it had gone into clubs which were like five six hundred capacities as opposed to two thousand capacities. And and I think, like you say, I think things run their course, you know. And, and I think we'd sort of got, like I say, love to be has always had a presence, but these other brands, you know that. They either couldn't sustain, you know, where they were, or they'd lost the venues. The venues had closed down, and you know, like I said, musically, they hadn't evolved with with where the music went. I think in the noise, you know, it went quite far away from that late nineties sound. I think the trance killed a lot of things off, didn't it? It, 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 it yeah. drew a line on in the sand, and the younger generation had a different kind of music to grow up on. <clears throat> so. You, you couldn't compete. We weren't going to become a trans brand, were we? So so that's where you go your separate paths and try and find the more intimate venues um, that are going to... Radio as well. Radio sort of went yeah. very commercial and they cut all the specialist shows, you know, all the, you know, guys like Tony and Graham Park and stuff, they, they weren't present on Galaxy anymore. You know, it just became very commercial and playlisted. So you didn't have that exposure into house music and, and you know, it wasn't being pushed into people's faces. And the digital era as well, you know, well, let's not forget about that. You know, the digital era came along and people weren't buying records anymore. And, you know, that was one of my favourite, you know, one of my favourite times of, uh, of my whole career was working in a record shop. You know, I used to DJ three, four nights a week. And I used to DJ an after-hours club in Leeds till 7, 8 in the morning and then go and open the record shop at 9, 10 o'clock in the morning. 
you know, and just work all day. Plenty of Red Bulls, by the way, at that point. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, and it was it was the buzz of being in the record shops and the social element of it. And when the digital era came along, I think, you know, and that's when it, lots of, there was always lots of DJs. But then I think every, a lot of the clubbers who were educated then wanted, they, they had access to the music quite easily. And, and the quality control, for me, the quality control went out of, out of the music. When you had a record shop, you had to have a buyer who really knew their stuff because the record had to purchase, the record shop had to purchase the product to then sell it. Whereas the download store literally got it for free and then sold it. You know, so it was like, where where was the quality control at that point on the on the sort of digital market? Really, it wasn't the same as a record shop. There's no one leading the team, was there? There's no there's no one kind of guiding you into the, the path of the good music, and it, it then became a free for all, really, and file sharing as well. That kicked yeah. everything into touch, didn't it? You know, that's that that ripped everyone's career out of. And we uh, set a record. We set a record label up, didn't we? In about two thousand and four started pressing vinyl and he died out a year later <laughs> we're doing really well as well weren't we uh, okay. you know, Gary's listen you had three components that worked well okay you had you had radio bbc radio and you had local radio kiss network galaxy network then you had i always called the country club of shops the record shops where people would get together and commiserate and catch up and things happened networking and things and then you had the nightclubs on the weekends that was it yeah. that's the whole era of dance music period mm -hmm. that's just the way if you want to talk the 70s the 80s and 90s into the 2000s when that ended it changed everything like Record shops are no longer around. Clubs went into smaller lounge type of yes. sizes. It just didn't make sense to bring over internationals. You didn't have the budgets to do that stuff anymore. And I think for for the like you say, there was a with like love to be was it was predominantly I'd say you know and love to be in those these places in Manchester it was 70, 80 percent of the same people in there every single week. You know, you you'd have a little bit of cross traveling where people would probably travel from Leeds to Manchester or Sheffield or wherever. And you had, you know, you had all the big nights, you know, like Ronson, but it was the people that went there every week. It was their night. You know, it wasn't just the promoters night. It was the people who went there. They saw that as their, their night, you know, love to be was the pe the people. And they knew that it was about the venue as well. You know, people still mention the music factory when you mentioned love to be, you know, it was about the venue as well, you know, which doesn't really sort of compare, to the to today's sort of generation really you know it was it was about the venue as well if you think about the hacienda all the nights at the hacienda had a name but it was the hacienda you know and people went to the hacienda so you know it was it was it wasn't and like you say when when it all sort of changed at the millennium it, a totally different scene came along you know it was and, and and festivals as well you know sort of like later festivals have really sort of kicked clubs to, to the curb a little bit because big time yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a, a, a 19-year-old and, you know, they'll save money to go to maybe two festivals a year, whereas we'd spend our money going to a, a nightclub every week because the festivals are so expensive to go to. But everything so just, must change, but everything must change and nothing stays the same. That's what happens. No, no. Yeah, and I think you've got to evolve as, as, as a brand and as artists as well. 
you know, which we've always we've always tried to do with with the projects we've worked on together. We had a, a brand called One Foot in the Groove in the mid noughties. Um, and then we sort of developed that around about 2013, 14 into what we do now, which is the trim tone thing. Um, you know, so we still get booked to play out in Ibiza and, and you know, some of the, 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 the more current sort of nights. And, and then we'd love to be when Tony took Love to Be back. I, I, I think the, t- the time Tony bought Love to Be, I actually opened a bar and restaurant. So I actually t- sort of took a step back from music and DJing because I was running a, I had my own bar and restaurant, which just completely took over my life. Um, and then I sold that in 2014. And uh, Tony, t- Tony was like, you know, let's get back involved with Love to Be. Let's get Love to Be sort of back to, you know, back to sort of doing some big events. And I think we, we did quite a few successful events. Uh, I think we went back to Sheffield to the club um, and did some really big events there with like Sandy Rivera and, you know, got some big headliners back involved. Um, and then uh, did a massive reunion. I think it was 2016 at Magna. And uh, it was like a history of house thing and love to be sort of hosted the, the, the main event. And it did, we put like five and a half thousand people in there. And, uh, you know, that was like huge f- for the brand. And, and I think from there, 2016, we knew the 25th anniversary was coming up. So we really focused on the 25th anniversary and sort of focused on, on how to, you know, develop the brand and, and move it on. So that's where we sort of, we took it up to sort of now, really. And the 25th anniversary was great. We, we toured all over the UK. Um, and even, even sort of the early sort of, around about 2012, 2013, we still did the odd thing at Space, didn't we, on? Carl Cox's night, we did a back room at Space and things like that. So always just trying to keep the brand relevant. And, th- and then we were hoping from the, the 25th anniversary tour to really kick on this year with, with more events, um, which obviously has all been put on hold. Um, and then going into going into next year, um, you know, we've got think plans for Ibiza, but we've, we've tried to just work on the profile during lockdown with the live streams and obviously the radio show, which you've been, been involved in, Lenny, this year. And thank um, which, yes, thank you for having me. No, no, it's, and, you know, one of the first people we saw, you know, we, we'd approach is to is to have you on and, and the original sort of the, the favourites of Love to Be. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously we've, we've we've got Dave Morales on there, David Penn, and, and the Q guys, and they're they're the guys who are uh, you know the sort of current guys who the the, the younger generation are going to come to Love to Be to see as well. Right. So now this brings me to where we're at now. Yeah, we have the, you know. We're, we're all playing at home, privately, streaming, playing on DJ sets. How is that? How are you able to do that without having that crowd in front of you? Oh, it's it's tough. Do you know what, Lenny? It's it's the first time I actually realised how much adrenaline goes into a DJ set when I started doing these these live streams at home. Number one. I did it stone cold sober because I'm at home. I don't want to get drunk at home on my own. So I did the set and, and I'm trying to feel what I would feel in a club. And it was, it was more, it was more the, the adrenaline was a lot more, even though I didn't have anyone to buzz off of and try and get a vibe off of, but you still got a stream of people putting, putting comments there and you kind of got a bit of feedback going on, but it was immense. And I used to say to Mark, you do a stream. The first streams we did, I couldn't sleep at night because <laughs> so I was so, I had that much adrenaline in my well, body. When we first went into lockdown, I mean, I just literally jumped on to, to the Love to Be page, didn't I? I just did a bit of an off the cuff kind of stream. And then everybody started streaming as well around that time. 
and all the big streams. And I said to Tony, look, we probably need to start streaming. And you were doing mixes, weren't you? You were posting mixes out and they were really popular and everyone was downloading the mixes. And and you were like, oh, no, it'd be a bit weird streaming. And we, we were a bit reluctant at first, I'm, weren't we? You know? I've got a face for streaming. This is the thing. <laughs> I'm all right on the radio. <laughs> and then we were like, right, okay, let's let's do some streams. And we, we got a few guests involved and, and yourself came on an early one as well. And we got David Penn um, to come on and we did a few things with S Paradis who we're going to be hopefully working with next year back, which has gone full circle again, Lenny. You know, we, the first club we did in IB for We Love To Be was S Paradis. And then we're going back there again all summer next year, fingers crossed. So, you know, we've got some really big sort of events planned for next year. But the streaming thing sort of has just sort of developed and we've got a, a strong core of people who come on every week. And, you know, we've thought about doing it more sporadically, like you defected to do and things like that. But I think giving people that weekly vibe again has brought us some new faces to the stream. And it's given people like that old kind of 90s. I'm going out on Friday. I'm going to the stream on Friday. It's like that weekly club vibe again on a Friday night. So it's, it's, it's bizarre, boys. Comment box is the dance floor for them, isn't it? Yeah, you know, and it's, it's a way of not just connecting with us as the DJs, but the crowd connecting with each other. And it, I think it's 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 even though platforms like Facebook don't want to allow it because of the licensing issues, I think it's such an important thing, not just for us as DJs, but for the people that connect with the music in each other. Um, and I think it should be applauded for the people that do it, at all people that do it, because I think it's it's such a positive thing. And, and yeah. you know, people don't ask for money out of it or, you know, we, we, we never have done. Um, we just want to try and make people happy during these yeah. times, really. But I mean, there's not a lot, really, is there? I mean, I want to go out to the pub or I want to go out to a club. You can't do it. So you can give them a little bit back through 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 this screen here. Yeah. Come, not, in, I think we come into my, to my home, dance with me. Dance what, with yeah. me. That's what it is. Don't dance, man. Dance with me, baby. And we try and get in, you know, really, we try and interact with people on the streams and things like that while we're DJing and, 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 and we talk as well, you know, which is cool. And people yeah. get a bit of a, they get a bit of a different experience than seeing you in a club, you know, and but, but they still get to enjoy the music. And I think musically, you can be really diverse, you play See, new stuff, old stuff, you know. There was a time back in the day where you play the record, right? And there'd be no mixing, and the guy would come on and go, I hope that made you feel real good inside. And the next velvety tune I got coming in is a hot track from Marshall Jefferson. And this track's going to make you groove on the dance floor. And boom, play the record, right? Now it's like, now you're like, come on, everybody, come share my, come share my live stream. We need you. And everybody's writing up in there saying, yo, you're in the, you're in the spot right now. Yeah. You can see everybody writing in and writing in. Let me tell you something. It's nice, but there is nothing. And I mean, nothing like playing for a crowd. No, 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 no. Absolutely. Totally agree. It's shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's shit. It sucks. I'm be honest with you. I hate this fucking pandemic. You want me to be honest? Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. cursing yeah. now. That's right. Bed dancing. Oh, it's my disco. Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm staying at clock now, Lenny, so you can swear all you fucking like. So anyway, it's... it's, <laughs> it's uh, well, yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, to be in front of a crowd, a live crowd, and feeling the energy from a crowd is not like looking at the wall in your studio, is it, and looking at a screen. You know, we're doing it... To keep people, yeah, yourself on a screen, you know. But the, the 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 people, you know, it's about entertaining the people. Home, but for us, yeah, it's, 
we want to be in a club, don't we? You know, we want. Remember to be when we go a party in Hacienda and we were hissing? People screaming into the hands. Yeah, I like the idea of explaining it, but I like to live. I loved living it. it was an incredible okay. experience. I mean, I we're, we're being positive. Yeah, I mean, we're being like really positive with with what we're trying to do as well. Is is to try and plan for next year as well. You know, is we're we're like I say we're, we're committing to Ibiza next year, which is seventeen dates back at S Parody with the roof off this time, Lenny, as well. So that'll be interesting. Um, <laughs> What? I don't know about yeah, this. Wait, 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 what's what's this news about S Paradis? Well, so it's yeah, so gone full circle from the first club in Ibiza we did to next summer. Um, we're we're going to hopefully announce details soon. Probably a bit of an exclusive reveal, really. We're we're going to be doing a Sunday daytime party from three till ten, eleven o'clock at night, like a space terrace kind of vibe. But the roof's going to be off. Um, and we're, you know, we're, we're sort of trying to put all that together at the moment. It's hard to plan. Now, um, wait, a we'll wait, a, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait. Let me. Let me be the. I'm going to be the Grim Reaper here. Yeah. As far as what the Spanish government have said, they were not opening any super clubs in Spain until a vaccination was working. What yeah. gives you this okay that you're able to do this? Well, we. we we have to plan. We've got no other choice. <laughs> we got a plan. We got a dream. That's right. We've got to have something to look forward to. Like. <laughs> even like, our dream. look, even with defective with Croatia, I'm going. Yeah, they're, they're putting up all these great dates, and I'm going, wow. But how's anybody guaranteeing anyone could do this? Look, we're in national. Explain to me where you are right now. You just said to me we're in national lockdown. Yeah. yeah, well, that's why we haven't released anything. You know, we, we, we're talking about it. We're throwing a few little things out there. We want to do eight. We want to do eight city major city dates as well next year with the brand. Which we're, it's ready to go. It's ready to do. We want to do a couple of dates back in Sheffield. Um, but again, we're we're not stupid to the fact that this probably couldn't happen. You know, and and it's it's about just planning. And then as soon as, like you say, if a vaccine comes just after Christmas or whatever, you know, we can sort of steam ahead with it. But it's okay. difficult, you know. So let me be one more. Let me be Dr. Fauci for you guys, the CDC expert, from what I read and hear and talk about. Realistically, the first initial rollout, they're saying that first responders would get would be March if it's ready. March. Does that mean we're going to be in time for clubbing summer of 2021? I mean, realistically. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you know. It might be a late summer. I'm hoping we can. Believe me, I want to go back out and play. I'm dying here, everyone. Please. I'm dying. Let me come and play for you. <laughs> <laughs> I need a gig. Hurry up. I'm coming. No. I'll, well, come don't we all. Time. I'll come when it's properly time to come and play. Well, that's why we haven't done we haven't done any of these socially distanced events because we've been offered we've been given a few opportunities to do them. But like you say, we want to be in a packed club with sweaty people, you know. Absolutely, having it. Not, no, not people no. Table. Now, let me be a bit of a pain in the ass. So, people watch Facebook, right? And they're looking at the live feeds of these socially distant gigs. So, the DJ is, you know, he's he's working the thing like this, and you know, he's doing his thing, and then they veer the camera, and everyone's like. Yeah, it reminds me of a birthday party. 
And everybody's gonna say, and everybody's waiting for somebody to come in. It's like, okay, it's like, it's like, okay, be be care, be quiet. The person's coming in, and the DJ. Yeah, yeah. He's, and I'm going. That looks crappy to me. And I'm not the only one. Trust me. I believe the other people looking at this are saying the same thing that that knows clubbing. They're going, no, this is not. It looks like a little like family gathering. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, Tony. You got it. And then I'm like, no. So on my end, yes. If I have to do some sort of gig like that, and if it's the right situation, sure, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll participate. I'm a team player. But at the same time, I'm not really feeling it from what I'm seeing. No, and that's what we said. We would only come back when we can come back 100%. You know, we will only do it when it's right. So, you know, whether it, that is next year, whether it's the back end of next year, now you've put a real dampener on it, Lenny. Thanks for that. We'll, uh, you know, we'll... <laughs> no, listen, listen. Everybody, get your tickets. Okay? <laughs> get your tickets. Get a free hat with them. Love to be, you know. Have some free hats. Here we go. Love to be is going to be in full power 2021. The only thing I'm worried about for love to be is they are going to be in full power. I'm going to be in full power. Well, will the governments of the world allow us yeah. to be in full power? And will this piece of shit COVID allow us to be in full power? Because that's yeah. who we're battling. We're not even battling the government. We're battling Mr. COVID. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally, totally agree with you, Lenny. But, you know, like I say, we've, we've got to be positive. We've got to try and be positive. And, you know, that we're doing the live streams, which is, you know, fine. But like you say, there's nothing like being out there and, and getting out there and doing something. Because that's why we're trying to plan and, but that's why we've not put any tickets on sale. You know, we don't want to disappoint people. We want the all clear and then we can we can really go for it. And, you know, we're, we're, tra- we're doing things as well. We're, we're relaunching. The, love to be at, a, you know, the record label and some albums come out in the late 90s. So we're relaunching the record label. We've got a, we've got a great guy working with us called Stu Pilling, who actually works with us at the Temple in the uh, in, around the Millennium Time, late 90s, the big super club. Um, a great guy. And he's come he's come back to work with us. I'd love to be and uh you know sort of relaunch the label um we've obviously got the radio show going and things like that so from a brand perspective lockdown has actually been quite good because we've managed to keep the profile there and we've we probably wouldn't have done the radio show if we'd have just been doing the gigs and you know it's given us time to focus on putting the label together working with some artists some good artists you know and, and hopefully get you involved at some point Lenny, with the label as well um, you know, and the, and the gigs and stuff next year. It'd be great to have you back over. And- Karen Scargill, Karen Ridley, wherever you are, love, you hear that? Hold Tony, hold Mark to their to their. I think they call it a verbal contract. That don't they now? Discount, please. Discount. <laughs> Everything's discount. Make a special prize, please. You get a free hat, a free hat with every remix. Yeah, free hat. Free hat. Look. You know, unfortunately, I've had good sponsorship already for a homegrown show. Funk du jour, look at that. They've given us hats. And, and and hats. hats. I'm probably Red Bull now as well. Where's my love to be banner thing I need? I need a love to be big banner. We'll send you one over. Say make America and make America rave again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make America raving again. Marva. Marva. 
<laughs> it should be sponsored by Red Bull after this week's show, Lenny, as well. So let's bring us up to this. Let's wrap this up in a good, positive, healthy Tony and Mark way of love to be. Where can we find the streams, the live shows? Where can we find you playing on the radio? Tell these people they need so to the, So the streams are every Friday and they're on our um, Facebook page, which is at Love To Be Events. We're also on Mixcloud at Love To Be. Uh, we Mixcloud would Love To Be. Uh, Twitch and YouTube as well. So it's all Love To Be on there. Um, and then the radio show is now broadcast. I think it's every continent now, isn't it, Tony? Yeah, on every continent. Yeah, we are. Yeah. yeah. So um, 30, uh, 40, about 40, 40 stations around the world, Kiss, kissing Australia, um, so some uh, Brazil, I think some stations in New York, Lenny, as well, I think we're on. Um, Las, Vegas, Las Vegas, yeah, Dubai, Middle East, um, Stockholm, Amsterdam, Italy. So, yeah, yeah, so just search out. We post it on the socials every week. Instagram at Love To Be Events. Everything's sort of posted on there links to the show are on mixed cloud you can listen back and things like that so yeah yeah check us out my radio yeah. voice you can hear my silky radio voice hello everybody welcome to love to be tony walker in the mix it's like yeah, yeah. It's like, he's like, 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 like the pm and this evening the pm will be speaking to you get ready everyone he should be playing love songs. His voice is that silky. Hey, Tony Walker, and this is the Quiet Storm. Hey, Tony Walker and the Quiet Storm. <laughs> and the record label, it's going to where is it going to the label? So, like, the Love to Be Records will be launching in January. It was going to be August. We've got an album coming out in January, which is going to be lockdown anthems. And um, we're still waiting for a couple of tracks off you, Lenny, for that actually. So, uh, you know, get your acts and your tracks out. Um, and then uh, we've got uh, yeah some some great singles. We're, we're signing some sort of fresh talent. We're working with the Cube guys. Are going to be doing an artist album for us, um, and, and uh, hopefully Dave Morales as well at some point. The guys we do the radio show with. So again, you your good self as well, Lenny. The little guy Dave, Mor the little man Dave Morales yeah. from the Deaf Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got some long coattails, and we're just hanging on the back of it, just uh, just riding along. So. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So it's a true legendary New York DJ. Don't come yeah, there yeah. than that if he's listening. He knows yeah. it. I know it. So yeah, it's great to have him involved as well. He's been really supportive as well. You know, we've sending us the IDs like yourself, and you know the guys we've been working with have been really good with us. And you know, hopefully we can we can all have a better year next year. And, and like I say, the label will be on Tracks Awesome Beatport and. Uh, you know, and all sort of iTunes and all the all the usual places. So yeah. And everyone's saying good luck with your launches, and they sound great. And all your supporters are hitting up on on the on the Facebook and thanking you. And I want to thank you guys. You were wonderful. Thanks, Lenny. It was a what about two hours? Can you imagine we did two hours of this? It's incredible. Oh, right? I can't believe how quickly it's gone. I can't believe how quickly it's gone. We have to stop, can't we? Just keep. I'm just getting going now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having a drink. Pour another drink and they'll become like uh, a comedy show another hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going that way, Lenny. <laughs> Not some Red Bull. <laughs> Let me clarify again. They have a record label. They have David Morales as one of their uh, air personalities on their Love to Be radio show that is streaming on 40 stations from Kiss.
Australia to a lot of the American stations, Las Vegas, they're simulcasted, love to be. Check out their streams. They're doing their live streams on the Love to Be events page. You can get Lenny's on this week. Lenny's on on Friday. Oh, that's right. I'm on this Friday live in the mix coming out of New York City, coming out of Nuevo York. (laughs) I miss all you guys in England. I miss traveling. Um, What's your prediction? How long do you think we're going to be in this this kind of not national lockdown, but how long do we're going to be in this for real? What do you guys think? I think spring. Mark is the optimist, so go with Mark first. Yeah, I, I've been saying I've I've been saying spring, April. Okay, Tony, what do you uh, Tony? Give us some realism now. Twenty twenty two, maybe. Wow. Yeah. It's funny you say that because even Simon Dunmore tweeted that too. About a, about a few months back when we went into lockdown, he had mentioned he made this whole thing about all the gigs stopping and realistically really being able to come back at that time. And I kind of think that we're going to get some moments of grandeur to have a moment, but then we're going to have a little setbacks here and there. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, we haven't just got to come back from COVID. We've got to come back from the economic. Yeah, financial a financial implosion. Oh yes, people are going to be poor at the end of this. You think things to be back to normal? That would, that would be that would be wrong. And, what also, and a lot of the a lot of the clubs haven't survived as well. Well, exactly. What's going to be left? You know, but we have to try and have some hope. You know, we, we're positive people. We come from a positive scene, so you know we're going to keep going and keep keep trying to keep people entertained, and hopefully. One to one soon, sooner rather than later. One story you haven't mentioned, David. I mean, quite, Lenny's quite good at changing a wheel, isn't he? On a on a car. But when we had a flat tire, <laughs> we took you over to Manchester once. I bet you don't even remember it. Tell me. I think we were with Matt, Matt, Matt Heap. You know Matt, the other Man City supporter. So you're both Man City supporters, by the way. I'm a, I'm a Man City fan, Lenny, as well. So you, you're all right. <laughs> I think we had a blowout once on the, well, not a massive blowout, but you helped us change a tyre once. You were very kind. <laughs> I was going to get you a job at Cork. Well, talented, Lenny. Well, there you go. If, you don't get, if we don't get any gigs back next year, Lenny, you can open a garage changing tyres. <laughs> <laughs> Did I change that tyre? tyre for us, yeah. <laughs> can you help me refresh my memory what the hell happened? Because I'm trying to remember. We were going over the Pennines. We were taking to, you to either, uh, the, either Galaxy Radio over there or something over to the Pennines. My friend Matt was the driver, who you know well, and I think we had we had a tight flat tire, and we couldn't change the tire. And you I had a teacher to show you guys. <laughs> and you were our guest, and you were there changing the tire. <laughs> That's right, I changed the tire. <laughs> guys, you know what? I tell this every time. You got to be ready for anything. <laughs> you got to be ready for. I mean, it's happened to. I mean, I I all about this. Wow. Here I am changing tires at Love to Be. Yeah, yeah. Love to Be. Mixing drinks, DJing, and changing tires. Story of Christ Almighty. (laughs) But as I said, two hours could never have been a chore nor happiness without spending it with Tony and Mark. They are the best chaps I know. They run a great night. It's tops, top of the tops. I can only say, 
thank you, Tony, for inviting me to England at that time. It was really a critical moment because it was pre me having my humongous hit records and it made me a household name, part of yeah. the story of the house music scene in the UK. We loved you, Lenny. That's why we brought you and we loved your music. We always have done, you know. Oh. Always and played your music as well, Lenny. Always played your music. Thank yeah. you.